Now at this time, it's uh, our privilege to take up God's Word. So I'm going to ask you to join me, if you would, this morning, once again in the book of 1 Thessalonians. It has been uh, our privilege to be working our way through 1 Thessalonians, and today we are in chapter 4. For the section we'll consider today, I'll begin reading in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13, and I'm going to read down through chapter 5, verse 4. Listen as I read God's Word. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we, who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so will we always be with the Lord, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now, concerning the times and the season, brothers, you have no need for anyone to write anything to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Let's pray. Lord, as always, whenever we take up to open your word, we understand our dependence upon you. That the word of God is not like anything else that men take in, that men read. But it is the very words of God and it is the very communication of spiritual and eternal truths. We recognize that we are not able to lay hold of spiritual and eternal truths by our natural man. That we need the enabling and assistance, indeed the life and indwelling of the Spirit of God. So Lord, we just pray that in this time, as we again turn our minds to consider some things from your word today, that you would be pleased to lead us to a clearer understanding. Lord, that you would give us some, some clear and practical and meaningful instruction for our lives. Lord, we believe that every passage in your word is pertinent and relevant and important. And so we would ask that as we consider these things that turn our eyes uh, in a real sense to the coming of our Lord in Jesus, uh, we just pray that you would bless our consideration this morning and uh, have your hand upon us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Again, as we take up this section, so far Paul has covered a number of different elements and issues that have been going on there in the church of Thessalonica. They had been facing so many problems and so much suffering that suffering had been prolonged. Much like we've been looking at in the early morning hour, looking through 1 Peter, and that is a book that speaks of so much trials and suffering and endurance. 
in the midst of the trials and suffering and endurance, also, uh, uh, time begins to pass by, and those that we love, those that we care for, pass on. That's one of the things that we all come to know is absolutely inevitable, that every single one of us will die. I mean, this is the reality that enters our minds, and, and uh, however it may be, when you come to particular days such as this, and that, that are known nationally, potentially internationally, as Mother's Day, you know, it, the, these thoughts are clear in your mind, and, and many of us have mothers, some of us have mothers that have already passed on. Others of us have mothers that are aging year by year, as is the natural progression, and it, and it causes you to begin to think, wonder how many more Mother's Days or, or Father's Days there will be before I don't communicate with that person on that day, because that is inevitable. Everybody we know, everybody that we love, everybody we don't love, Everybody, if the Lord waits, if the Lord does not come in the next hundred years, everyone we know will pass away. That's a guarantee. And for the, the, the believers here in Thessalonica, they're starting to be confused because they've not had enough teaching. Remember, he had said just before this that he wants to go and visit them so that he can make up what is lacking in their faith. And what I sought to explain to us is that is not to increase the percentage of their faith or how much they believe. And right now I'm about 70% all in, but I, you know, if I could only make up that 30%. No, no, no. What's lacking in their faith was not a percentage. What's lacking in their faith was content. They needed more instruction. The things that we, all that the scriptures give to us teach to us, reveal to us, we are to believe, which means we are to have faith in. And so they had faith to an extent in all that they had yet been instructed, but their instruction had lasted only about three weeks before Paul was out, pushed out of there. There's not a lot of ground that you can cover in three weeks' time. And so with that, they're confused as to what happens for those of us who die. What happens for those of us in the church that have already died and yet Jesus didn't come again? They're not sure about what happens when someone dies. Where do they go? Is there a resurrection? Is there hope? They're not aware of all of those things. And we're going to begin to take up today and see. This is designed to add to supply some of the things that are lacking in their faith. One of these areas is right here. And I, and I, I want to focus, first of all, we see the necessity or the importance of the advancement of growth. That's our first thought this morning. There needs to be an advancement. There needs to be a growth. There needs to be a progression. We do not start out at a certain, at, at, a, at the place where we're supposed to be. There, there becomes a notion, and you've probably seen it, maybe been a part of it, where some people's goals seems to be if we can just get them saved. If we can just get them saved to believe in Jesus, we're done. No, you're not. 
That, that's not how it works. Uh, practically speaking, with physical birth, birth, it's not for most parents if we can just get through birthday. Then we're done. All right, you're on your own, buddy. Is that how it happens with the baby? No. There, there is a, a great degree of growth, a great degree of, of, of dependence. And as the child grows and matures, the, the plan is that the child would become more and more learned, more and more responsible, more able, more capable, and then less dependent, that there, there is a, a stabilizing that takes place as they grow. Well, this is part of the challenge. Remember also, I always want to draw our minds back. We speak often of the Great Commission that drives us to missions, right? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then what does it say? And teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded. So are we done once we've made them disciples and they've been baptized? Once they're made disciples, that is students, learners, pupils, now it's teaching time. And that is a tragic deficiency in the modern church. The commitment to discipleship. The idea that somehow it doesn't matter, I've joined the club, got my membership card, I'm good. No, that's not it. You're, you, you've, if you are in the grace of God, in, in a real sense, you should have a longing, like we heard in that psalm, a hunger, a desiring, an inward thrust. I want to know more. More than that, I want to assert to you today, you and I need to know more. Not just want to, we need to know more. Paul ends up writing to churches like the church at Galatia and says, who has bewitched you? You were running well. And now you, you've gone off. He writes to others at times who have become shipwrecked in their faith because they've been subject to false teaching and it goes astray. Now, the way that you avoid being shipwrecked and being blown into the storms is if you have a sure and steadfast anchor for your soul and you are growing and stable in that. You've got to have that knowledge. And that's why he begins this section really with these words, verse 13. Brothers, or but we do not want you to be unaware. The ESV, which is the translation that I'm reading, is being sweet and gentle here because the old King James here would say, would say something like this. We do not want you to be ignorant. Now, nobody would want to be ignorant, but sometimes we're comfortably unaware. Now, this phrase... Paul uses this phrase, I do not want you to be unaware. I do not want you to be uninformed. I do not want you to be ignorant. He uses this phrase about six different times through Romans, Corinthians, and here in Thessalonians. And so it's not that this is the only, the only issue related to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ that we need to know. Actually, we're told, it, it's in chapter uh, 1 Corinthians 12, it says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be unaware. Because here's the problem. If in certain areas we are unaware, untrained, uninformed, what can happen? I mean, this, this, is, the, this is the struggle, and, and there's, there's no escaping this. The areas where we 
even as the people of God, have not been trained or instructed from the scriptures, strangely enough, we don't remain neutral. We don't remain having no ideas or no opinions. I cannot tell you how many times you, you get in circumstances like this, and maybe you've even seen these kinds of things. Someone opens a Bible, reads a verse, and they start going around the room, and everybody starts sharing. You know, I've never really studied this verse, and I don't know anything about the Greek, but, I'm, but I think it means, what's happening here? I've never really studied. I remember speaking with someone as I was getting ready to go over to India and I was teaching on end times and, and this person began his introduction. You know, I've never really studied end times in strong detail. But you know, I'm pretty convinced that, I'm like, wait a second, hold on. You got pretty convinced without ever studying. Is that healthy? Is that wise? But it's not uncommon. We've got, to, we've got to recognize this about ourselves. The tendency is this. Where we've not been taught something, we've filled it in with something else. We've filled it in with our own natural expectation of who God is, who Christ is, how he should work, what love looks like, what kindness looks like, what mercy looks like. We've filled it in with our own ideas. If we've not filled it in with our own ideas, it's wonderfully been filled in for us. By things that we've heard and or been taught somewhere, someplace before. The hope is that they've taught us from the scriptures, but not always. And so th this idea, this important principle of, I do not want you to be uninformed. Because here's the issue. A lack of true information will end up being filled in with misinformation which means wrong ideas now listen once if if you don't have the true information and it's just being filled in with misinformation then what you've also done is now as someone who holds to misinformation you are actually very susceptible to disinformation now, I know that you said, well, with all those words, it got really messy. Information, misinformation, disinformation. Let me unmessy it if possible. Misinformation is faulty ideas. It's not grounded in the scripture. So someone comes along and they may show you an isolated verse or passage somewhere and they can give you disinformation. That's intentionally or instructively wrong ideas. It's like propaganda is disinformation. But because you didn't ever have the true information, you're now susceptible to it. And here's what's dangerous. When misinformation and disinformation become doctrine, someone now comes in with truth. And what do people shout? Treason. Blasphemy. How dare you say those things? That can't be true. And so when the truth is reasserted in an environment where wrong ideas have taken hold, the, the dearest people with the purest consciences who still are trying and desire to do right, because they don't stand firmly on the word, they actually will find themselves fighting against the word. 
I've known a lot of dear brothers and sisters who have found themselves fighting against the word in certain times in certain areas, and it's very important. Um, Concerning this, for example, when Jesus was talking to the disciples, I want us to begin to understand something like this. This is not something to be embarrassed and ashamed of because we've all been there to some degree. I mean, I'm not embarrassed and ashamed of the fact that when I was six months old, I couldn't count to a hundred. It's all right. Uh, you know, it, it, because that it's part of the process of growth. And so it's important for us to see this. In, in Mark chapter 9, for example, verse 32, Jesus had spoken to his disciples about how he was going to Jerusalem and all that he was going to suffer there. And it says this in Mark 9, 32, but they did not understand what he was saying and they were afraid to ask. That's what's got to stop. They didn't understand what was being said and so they were afraid to ask. Now, these were who? Men who would be the apostles. So is it a shameful thing to say, I don't understand? No. The shameful thing is when you don't understand, not to ask. Because if you don't understand and you don't ask, where do you remain? In the land of ignorance. Which nobody wants to dwell there. Well, I, I don't think so. Even, for example, uh, when, when, when you are in ignorance, when you are not informed, when you're not trained, then you don't see the sun. In Acts chapter 13, verse 27, it says this. Those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize, listen, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which were read every single Sabbath. The word of God was being read every single Sabbath to these people in, in, their, in their temples, being read in, in all of their gathering places, in their synagogues. It's being read, but they did not get it. It didn't register. And for us, that's confusing because we read it. It's like, how do they not get this? You know, Isaiah 53, we see Jesus there. It's all so clear to us, but it wasn't to them. They didn't understand it. They didn't recognize it. And so at these very things that they fulfilled by condemning him. Even in a sense, the scripture takes, seeks, Paul seeks to take that which is unknown and make it known. As he found himself there in Athens, they had all of those different gods and all of those different things that they worshipped, right? And he came and as he was speaking at the Areopagus, he says to them, I even saw that you had a shrine, you even had something to the unknown God. Which means if somehow they left one out, you know, whatever they might have, you know, the one of the visible, the invisible, the hills, the mountains, the valleys, the up, the down, the east, the west, whatever, uh, of, of war, of harvest, all the different gods that they would conceive of and concoct in their minds, but they thought, what if we left one out? And so they made themselves an extra one to an unknown God. So if you don't know which God's going to help your present need, go ahead and go to unknown, because maybe he's the one who can get it done. Well, Paul comes into that, and, and basically this is the reality. The true God apart from the grace of God and the revelation of God's word, remains unknown to people. 
And he says, this unknown God, which you worship, I declare to you. He was taking that which could not be explained and would not be codified, would not be given clear meaning, and he comes into that and says, let me tell you who this unknown God is. What his goal was is to do what? Take that which was unknown and make it known. That's got to be some of the, uh, a passion for us to know what we don't know. That's the advancement in growth. Um, if not, there can also be a confusion even in how we respond to circumstances. In Romans chapter 2, verse 4, in speaking of some of the uh, struggles and trials that God would bring in the actual experience of some people, it says this, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing so they didn't know that what? The kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance. Here is, uh, the, the, be, this would be also part of the challenge. Some people might think, look, I've done wrong. I failed. I'm doing wrong. But so far, things aren't going that bad. My whole life hasn't fallen apart. So I guess I'm okay, Right? Is that what the scripture is saying? If your whole life hasn't fallen apart, then I guess you're okay? No, it's not saying that. It's saying don't presume on the kindness of God. Just because God has not yet crushed you does not mean that he doesn't see it. And actually, in, instead, you should say this. He has not yet crushed me. How kind and merciful. Let me stop it and honor him. The kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance, not to continuance in sin. But, but people in their sinful condition, apart from the working of the Spirit of God, think, well, if my life is okay, then I may as well continue. I mean, if what I was doing was that bad in the eyes of God, then wouldn't he make my life absolutely unbearable? And since he hasn't, then maybe I'll just uh, I'll wait until he does. That is wrong. And so these are the kind of things, if you don't know it, then, then your responses are unhealthy. Um, it, it, some of these things, for example, when we consider the grace of God, it's important knowing the things that the scripture says are valuable. When we, uh, sometimes when you consider certain details of God's absolute sovereign grace, when we say, I was a wretch, I was dead in my trespasses and sin, and he by his mercy made me alive in Christ Jesus. No one generally would disagree with that, but, but we have other ideas that mix into it today. People say, how were you saved? How were you born again? And their, their natural answers are what? Well, let me tell you what I did. Wait a second. Uh, yeah, what I did is I believed, I turned, and when I repented and when I believed, then I was born again. So it was by the exercise of my will that I was born again. And everybody, and, and a huge percentage of the Christian population says, yeah, that makes sense. Amen. And they begin to applaud, whereas the scriptures say things like this. 
in James chapter 1 verse 18. Speaking of God, it says, of his own will, he begat us or he brought us forth by the word of truth. So when I heard the word of truth, that gospel of his will, he brought us forth. Wait a second. I, I'm pretty sure when I heard it of my own will, I followed him. Right? What is this saying? Why does it say of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth? Because you're, we're missing an important piece of that. Here we were, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 and 2 verse 5, you who were dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and sin. We've considered this in the past. What do dead men do? Yet nothing. So you were dead in your trespasses and sin, and what happened? You reached out. No. You rolled over. You, no. The, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. You did nothing. You were dead. He made you alive in Christ Jesus, forgiving your trespasses. So what condition was I in? Dead. And then what? He made me alive. And you know what happened when he made me alive? I believed. I repented. I followed him. I willingly laid hold of Christ. But what we often aren't taught is we did it because he made us alive we he caused us by his word to be born again to a new and living hope and when we were born again when we were made alive then we responded we've put our the our response as being the response of dead men the response of the unborn no first he brings us and then we respond. And the word of God is so clear in these areas. But sometimes these days, these truths that were so central in the days of the apostles and so clear in the teachings of Christ, so strongly and wonderfully recovered during the era of the Reformation, so powerfully preached by godly men throughout the centuries, sometimes you say these things in this modern day and people look at you and say, no, that's wrong. You shouldn't say that. And sometimes you have to say to them, well, actually, I was just quoting the Bible. We can't ever say the Bible shouldn't say that, can we? No. First Peter that we've been going through, First Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again. To a new, to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ Jesus. Wait a second. Where am I in there? His mercy. He caused us to be born again. What, did I, what about me? Well, I'll tell you where you were in that. You were born again by the power of God. That's glorious. Why do you want to take some of that glory for yourself and say you did it? You are where you are born again by the mercies of God. Praise God for his mercy. 
Don't take some of the glory for yourself. It's not right. He's not done. In 1 Peter, he goes on to say this in chapter 1, verse 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of seed that is imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. The word of God was implanted within me, and it caused me to be born again by the power of God. Wait a second. So I'm just the recipient of it? Yes. It's a, it, it saved a wretch like me, not a repenter like me. When it saved a wretch like me, it brought me to repentance because I now see him in all of his glory. I mean, we, it's... it's interesting how hard it is listen to what it says in first peter 1 21 who through him are believers in god wait a second i thought it was by my believing that i'm joined to him but this scripture says that it is through christ that i've become a believer wait a second are you saying that all that it, all that i am and all that i have is from him i mean what what percentage of my salvation did i achieve and the answer is none salvation belongs to our god i mean that's the wonderful song in the book of revelation as the innumerable saints are gathered around the throne of god salvation belongs to our god the rest of the verse doesn't doesn't go and one percent to me it's not part of that song in heaven. It's all God. So much so that for, we remember this. In John chapter 6, verse 36, what does Jesus say? All my Father gives me will come to me. All right, wait, wait. I'm saved because I came to him. Well, all the Father gives me will come to me. That's verse 37. Verse 44 and verse 65 of John 6, Jesus says this. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Wait a second. I know that I'm saved because I came to Jesus. I did it. Yeah. What, why did you do it? No one can come. Don't say that. Don't say no one can come. I know they can because I did. Well, at that point, the problem is this. You're saying the Bible's wrong. No one can come, but some do. Actually, not only. Some do. Surely, all my Father gives to me will come to me, and I will raise them up on the last day. So if I've come, I know that I've come, the scripture tells me, not of my own, but because I've been drawn by the Father. I've come because the Father gave me to the Son. Oh, the glorious grace of God that bought me, that sought me, that brought me, that my salvation is all of God. These are not small things. You know, along with a multitude of things, all that the New Testament has to say, all the scriptures, I do not want you to be uninformed. Because when we are uninformed, what do we do? We fill it in with misinformation. And we put in the place of a sovereign God and His glorious salvation, we put ourselves. In, in the place of the cause of my life in Christ, all of God, all of grace, all of mercy. We've turned it around and say, instead of saying, God, thank you for giving me life and faith by your spirit and word, we actually say, God, I put my faith in you. 
No, he put faith in you and you believed in him. That's the glory of how it works. I do not want you to be uninformed. It's very important that we are a people who are not uninformed because this is one of those areas. Now, we generally are not in the same danger, and that's why I've given a slightly different example for our initial point. We're not in the same danger. I think most of us in modern Christianity, if I was to interview you and say, what do you think happens to the believers who have already died and are in the graves? Are they just going to remain in the graves forever and have no part in, in the resurrection when Christ comes? We would all generally say, because we have more information on this issue than they did, no, they will rise, we will rise, together we will be with the Lord in the air. And so from the first point, the first thought, the advancement in growth, information is important because if we don't fill our minds with what the word of God actually says, we'll replace it with what we think and what we feel. Or it will be replaced with what someone says. And then when the truth comes, we might fight against it. The second thing I want us to see in this passage, not only the advancement, the advancement of growth, but the advantages in grief. The knowledge that we have, the, the truth that we've received, uh, the grace of God and, and what he's revealed in his word, it is advantageous in every area. And so helpful in seasons of grief. Now, uh, many of us have at various times and in various ways experienced grief and sadness and loss and pain. But we experience it differently than does the world because of the knowledge that the scriptures give us. Verse 13 says this. We really find that this the knowledge that we have, the information we're given in Scripture, it gives us a strength in the midst of sorrows. It says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Now, again, I just got to throw this out here for maybe those who are reading it without knowledge. Asleep, it's not necessarily those who are at home right now asleep when we wish they were here. It's not also a reference to those who are physically here, but presently asleep. <laughs> who is it a reference to? The word sleep there is a euphemism. It's, it's a, a gentle way of saying those who already died. Sleep, uh, the, the way it kind of used to be uh, said in the Old Testament, particularly in a Hebrewistic way of thinking, they fell asleep and they were buried with their fathers. Now note this, if sleep is merely slumber, you don't wanna be buried. But figuratively, the sleep means when they've died. So those who, have, those who are asleep, what happens to them? We don't want you to be uninformed that you may not grieve as others do that have no hope. See, that's the wonderful reality. When you know truth, when you are rightly informed, it fills you with hope. It fills you with glory. It fills you with worship. It fills you with humility. It fills you with praise of God. It, true knowledge that comes to us through the word has a potent effect 
on the way that we feel and on the way that we think and on the way that we live. And so those who would know the truth of what God's purposes are, they have hope. Now remember, for the believer, hope isn't the idea of just, you know, isn't blind hope or a leap of hope. Oh, I hope so. Hope is simply the sure expectation of things yet to come. All right? So it's not just, well, we think maybe they'll be raised. We hope someday we'll see them again. No, no, no. It's not like that. It is, we know. The, the faith and the hope that is ours in the scripture is rooted in what we know to be true because what it is what he has revealed to be true philosophy has sought to set forth different categories that would separate faith and knowing that is that is the tragic deception of men who know not the things of god it, it is and part of that problem is goes back to romans chapter 3 when it speaks about the condition of men apart from god there is none who's righteous. No, not one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks after God. So if they so how many are there that understand? None. So do I get real wisdom from men? Or do I get real wisdom from God? First Corinthians tells us actually the wisdom of men is foolishness and actually the even poetically it says this the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men which is such an interesting way of stating it it's a way that puts us in our place but men don't like to be put in that place we want to be put there but that's where he belongs and so in the midst of sorrow, we have the hope. And what is that hope? What is that, that surety that, uh, that comes out of this? Well, look with me at what, at what the scriptures say here. What's going to happen to those who have fallen asleep? We will not grieve as others do before, verse 14. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So it's not done. They still have a future. Their future is with Christ. And when he comes, they will be with him. Now there's still some mystery associated with that. We know that in this life, at, at this time, for the believer, if we die, once we're absent from the body, we are present with the Lord, which is far better. Now when Christ comes again, they will come with him. And in their coming with him, they will, the scripture will tell us momentarily, they will, in their spirits coming with him, their souls coming with him, they will receive their resurrection. They will receive their new, what we, we call glorified or spiritual bodies, as is mentioned at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And so this is an absolute sure hope. See, the unbelievers, and this is why we, I want to be very careful here. The unbelievers, the rest of the world, a multitude of man-made religions, they would still claim to have hope. 
This is what we think is going to happen. You know, we're going to inherit our own little world that we're going to rule over. Or we're going we're gonna to end up in nirvana. And we're going to, well, they'll have some sense of misplaced hope. Our hope is not like that. Ours is sure. Uh, often we'll uh, try to impress this idea. And going back to where, where Jesus is speaking with Peter uh, that, on that occasion. Where, who do you say that I am? Or, or even here in John, over in John chapter 6, where he turns to his disciples, will you leave also? When he gave the hard teaching that, you know what? No one comes to me unless the Father draws him. Many of the disciples went away at that point. And he turns to his uh, close-knit disciples, those apostles, and says, will you leave me too? And he says, where will we go? For we have come to know and believe. There is a glorious link in the scriptures between I know this. It's not a, uh, I'm just casting my self on the possibility. No, it is I stand firm on the reality. That's the grace of God. That's the, that's the faith that God gives. And that's the difference. The, the approximate faith that men muster often fades and falls away. The faith that God gives surely takes root and surely bears fruit. And so we get to see uh, uh, this, uh, this idea. Now, is sorrow and grief a bad thing? No. Christ himself was sorrowful as he approaches the Garden of Gethsemane. He tells his disciples, my soul is very sorrowful. We as a people will, will weep with those who weep. We will mourn with those who mourn. We will grieve together. But see, the, that grieving that can absolutely debilitate someone who does not have the grace of God, the knowledge of God, the truth of God, it can't destroy us. And here's why. Because we know that God is working all things together for good. And those in Christ who have fallen asleep, they're in a place that's far better. And Christ will bring them with him. God is working out all of his perfect purposes. The same kind of thing in Isaiah 51, it says this, verse 11. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. In this life, you will have trials. In this life, you will have tribulation. In this life, you will have sorrow. But in the midst of sorrow, we still have something more. It's interesting the, uh, what Jesus said to his own disciples. In John 16, verse 20 and following, he's telling them how he's going to die. And he tells them when he dies, they will be, the words of John 16, verse 20 are, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. Now listen, so now their sorrow would be turned to joy because Jesus died, they saw him die, they saw that he was buried, sorrow. Then they saw him rise again, joy. Now with those that we know, we see the first part, correct? We don't see them rise again, but 
because we know that Jesus has risen and ascended and he's coming again. We know that they also who are in Christ will rise again. And there's something powerful about the way that it's stated here in verse 22. So you also have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice with a joy that no one will take from you. See, that's what somehow happens to us. When we are united to Christ, and when those that we love who are in Christ, there's a grief because the moments together are done. We won't, we won't share that anymore. We won't see their face. We won't laugh about those events. That, that separation, there is a sadness in that. There is a sorrow associated with that, and that's, and that's fine. But in the midst of that, because of their union with Christ, there is a joy. A joy that can't be taken from us. And I, and I often want us to, to keep this in mind. Uh, very important. Those in the world who, who don't have Christ, sometimes they, they uh, have met with severe accidents. Sometimes they're in circumstances where they're in bodily pain and agony. And then they die. They succumb to illness or they succumb to death. And people will tend to say, well, at least that's done. But whatever suffering that they were experiencing, whatever degree of human suffering that was going on in their bodies, if they knew not Christ, to pass from this life wasn't to a moment of peace. The whole story, rest in peace, does not work for those who aren't united by faith to the Prince of Peace. There's no peace. There's no hope. And, and, and so there, there's a sense in which those who don't know Christ, no matter how much they're in bodily agony, you hang on. You don't wanna, you don't wanna give up and let go because things only get worse from here. But we also, on our own side, we tend to think like this. Well, for the believer who who whatever illness or lack, or age, or circumstance, have led them to a terminal condition where they are in constant pain. We're often saying, okay, you know, it would be better for them if they would just pass. And that's true, actually. But understand this. I mean, though it may not be factual, I'm standing here, so I'll use myself as an example. Imagine someone in the prime of his life, in full of vigor and energy, uh, victories, all is well, full of celebration, nothing going wrong. Listen, for that guy who just won the national championship, for that guy who, who's on the top of the moon or over the moon or however you might say it, for him, in that moment, to depart and be with Christ is far better. Even for him, it's better for him to pass. I know we don't think of it like that, but I'm urging us to think of it. Like, now, I'm not saying that you should be wishing. You know, you, I'm not moving you to from now on, okay, once I know somebody's saved, I'm going to pray for their passing all the time. No, pray for their 
usefulness, fruitfulness, their diligent service to the Lord while He gives them breath. Because remember, He saved us not just for our inheritance. He sprinkled us clean. He saved us from dead works in order to serve a true and living God. So it's not only about the salvation to come. It's about the serving and the working of out, out of our salvation in the days that are here. All right? Because it's not about, for us, it's no longer about what seems best for me and to me. It's what is best for His glory and His name. Amen? And moving on to the last point, the advent of glory. Jesus is going to return. It says here, verse 5, We who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven. With a cry of command, the voice of the archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God. When Christ comes again, it's going to be clear. It's going to be cataclysmic. It's going to be something no one can ignore. And he really is coming again. Remember, when he ascended, what did the angel say? He, just as he has ascended... So he will also come again. This is a sure thing. And the scriptures tell us this. Not only is he coming again, but when he comes again, he's bringing all of those who have died in him with him. And then as they come, they will be caught up. They will receive their resurrection bodies. And then not only they, as they are caught up, in that trumpet of God, the dead in Christ rise first, verse 17, then we who are alive and left will be caught up together with them. They go, we go, and who are we with? We're with him as Christ is coming. And then it says what? To meet the Lord in the air and so we will always be with the Lord. I mean, there's a lot of things that can be said eschatologically, a lot of things related to end times. There's a lot of views regarding the details. This passage is not giving us all of the details, but it's giving us absolutely important and non-negotiable ones. Jesus, who came in the form of man, lived that life, truly died on the cross, was buried, rose the third day, ascended to heaven, and he will come again. How sure are you? Look, this is more sure, more guaranteed than the sun rising tomorrow. Because the only reason the sun will rise tomorrow is because he lives. He upholds everything by the word of his power. Everything that exists was made through him. Everything is, is sustained by the very person and power of Christ. And so it is as sure as these things. And you know what? Men consider the sunrise pretty sure. You can even read in the newspaper. Sunrise at 622 and 
40 seconds. Sometimes, they, you know, and sunset at, and, and they give it, they predict it. It's in the newspaper even before it's happened. How are they doing that? Well, because it's kind of happened for centuries. And it's a given. But what they don't realize is that given, as that sun moves from one end to the other, you know whose glory it declares? It declares God's glory. You know whose surety it declares? I tell you, as much, we, and we'll do that play on words. As much as you can have some expectation of the sun coming up, we can have even stronger expectation of the sun coming down, gathering his elect from one end of heaven to the other. And from that time on, nothing. We will never be apart from him again. And as it moves us towards those final days, it reminds us of things like this in Revelation 21, verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. The former things have passed away. Why is it that when the world sees death, they have no hope? Because they don't know what's there. And even what they choose to try to lay hold of, they don't stand on it confidently. We can say with certainty, he's coming. He's taking me to himself. He's bringing all of us to himself. And once we're with him, all of this is done. All the misery all of the struggles, all of the agony. And so why is it that we can have joy even now? Remember the disciples, even when he was ascended, you will, once they see him, have a joy that no one will take from you. So that's why we even, as those who are kind of the inheritors of that grace that is, was given to the apostles, because Christ is risen again, we have a joy that no one can take from us. Because we know it's true. And so simple thoughts in retrospect from this, this uh, wonderful little passage. We, see these, we saw these three things. It urges the importance of advancement in growth. I do not want you to be uninformed. And I'm urging all of us, we want to strive to be informed. We want to ask, what does the scripture say about this? And what does the scripture say about that? And how should I understand my salvation? And how should I understand spiritual gifts? And how should I understand the grace of God operating in me to turn me from sin? How, can, how should I understand the freedom and liberty that we have in Christ? How should I understand these things? Ask these questions. And listen to God's word as it gives those answers. Secondly, not only advancement and growth, we saw the advantages in grief. For those who have hope and life in Christ, we have a strength in sorrow because we know that his resurrection and him resurrecting the dead is sure. Now, the scary part is this. He tells us in, in the, the gospel of John, some to the resurrection of life, that's those in Christ who have fallen asleep and us who remain, and others to the resurrection of judgment. And so what is a cause of great hope for us will be, the scriptures will say when he's coming, all the nations of the earth will mourn and wail when they see him coming. 
on the day that he comes to be glorified. So one segment, all of his own, all of his sheep just glorying and, and brought up to him. And the rest in the agony of separation and realization, it was true. All that my Christian friends were telling me, it was true. Look at this. The advantages in grief that we have a strength in the midst of sorrow. And then lastly, the advent in glory. As Christ comes in his glory and we are gathered to him and remain ever with him. In that resurrection to those spiritual bodies that will never again know pain, suffering, sadness, and separation. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your word. Uh, it says so much, Lord, in our hearts, uh, uh, I hope that they would be full, Lord, that we would just be encouraged in our own hearts in seeing how important it is to make advancements in our knowledge, to grow in the things that, that we learn and understand so that it's not filled in with wrong ideas and wrong expectations, that it would be rooted in what you have clearly revealed in your word. Lord, we also want to just uh, thank you uh, for the hope that we have because Christ lives, because he has risen, because of his power that continues to manifest itself in clear and visible ways everywhere we look every day. Thank you, God, for giving us eyes to see it. Lord, and we also thank you that someday these eyes, because of your grace, will behold Christ in his resplendent glory. And because of your mercy, we will also share in that glory. Lord, such things are too great for us. But Lord, we worship you, and we thank you, and we wait for your revealing. And we wait for a deeper experience and understanding of these things. In Jesus' name.